passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. As I mentioned earlier, uh, we've been working our way through a short series just looking at life after death. And uh, it may sound odd, but this morning we're not looking at life after death. We're actually looking at life after life after death. Uh, that is not a typo. It is about our eternal state as Christians. We have looked at what happens one minute after we die. We've looked at uh, uh, our resurrected bodies. We've looked at the millennium. We've looked at the rewards and judgment that await all people. And now this morning we're, we're ending by looking at what is God's plan for the rest of time. If you look at life or, or time in perspective, the amount of time in this creation is extremely short in contrast to eternity without end. And so it is appropriate for us to spend some time looking at this topic of the new heavens and the new earth. And I, I want to start by just uh, confessing to you this morning that when I was younger, around age eight or, or nine, I didn't really want to go to heaven. It's not because I didn't believe in the gospel, but it's because I had an incomplete understanding of what eternity would be like. And I, I fear for us, or for many of us, our understanding of life after death is probably more influenced by far side cartoons or Tom and Jerry cartoons instead of the robust picture that we see in the Bible about life after death. I actually remember being uh, at that age uh, kind of dreading the idea of heaven because I was an active young little boy and I loved running. I loved playing and deep within me I felt that I had been created to laugh, created to enjoy good food, uh, created to explore the majesty of the outdoors, created to use my imagination, and the idea of existing in an ethereal state, disembodied as just a, a spirit floating on a cloud, that did not at all sound appealing to this young boy who was oftentimes covered in dirt and his own blood from playing too hard. And it turns out, that the longings of young Jordan weren't too far off as we look at the Bible. You see, the Bible teaches us that God didn't just save us for eternity as a disembodied spirit, but salvation is incomplete without a restored, perfected, glorified body. We looked at this a, a few weeks ago, that God has created us to live in bodies for all of eternity. That resurrected, glorified, restored, purified body is meant to live in a resurrected, glorified, restored, purified, new heavens and new earth for all eternity. As we will see this morning, you were meant to live for all eternity, tasting the fresh air of a cool Minnesota forest in the fall. You were meant to fish along Jesus in the streams of Montana for all eternity. 
You were meant to drink in the beauty of the Black Hills, of the Grand Canyon, of the Rockies, of the grasslands, of the solar eclipse, as we saw a few weeks ago, for all eternity. Well, at least maybe not the solar eclipse because the sun is going to disappear because we don't need it anymore. Made to live life worshiping God as a farmer, as a cultivator, as a creator, as a writer, as an artist, as a gardener, to do all of these things and more for all eternity alongside our risen King. That is what you were created for, to imagine, just imagine for a second, a life filled with joy because the frustrations of futility, of bad weather, of traffic jams, of financial shortfall, of countless other things are gone. And that was God's plan for humanity from the very beginning. That's what the Bible tells us. It reveals to us that God had a plan from the very beginning for humanity, and it was a very, very good plan. And because that beginning of God's plan is so important for us this morning, let's take a few moments and just look at the the progression of the Bible's story, What what I like to call the drama of redemption. To look at how God has planned from the very beginning a special place in his creation for humanity. And how as we look at the new heavens and the new earth, as we look at eternity, we see that God has not forgotten his plan and indeed will accomplish his plan that he had from the very beginning. So from the very beginning, God has a plan for humanity. The New Testament tells us that that plan actually existed before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That passage tells us that from the very beginning, God had a plan that culminates in Jesus' love for the church. Before the foundation of the world, before God spoke creation into existence, God had a plan for humanity that culminates in Jesus and his love for the church. God had a special plan for humanity from the very beginning. Genesis chapters 1 through 3 tell us a bit of what that plan was like. It tells us that God created the Garden of Eden for humanity to dwell with him. God created us to live with him. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and uses language in the same way that it would talk about one of us walking in our house. Genesis chapter 3 also tells us that Adam and Eve are expelled, and at least one of the reasons that they are expelled from the garden after sin is because they can no longer live in the presence of a holy God as sinful creatures. 
God, from the very beginning, had a special plan for humanity, and that was to live with them, to walk alongside of them for all eternity. That was God's plan. But it's not all that God had planned. God also had a special place in creation for humanity. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God not only created humanity to live with him, he also created humanity to rule alongside him. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Both men and women were created by God to have dominion or to rule alongside God in his creation. The, uh, just a, a couple of verses later, verse 28, And God blessed them, both Adam and Eve, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created man and woman in his image as a special part of his creation to, with a special commission, To spread his glory to the ends of the earth through all of creation. And as verse 28 tells us, the key to spreading his glory to all of creation is by filling the earth and subduing it or stewarding that creation. God created Adam and Eve with a beautiful task, with an incredible calling. And I think, if we're honest with ourselves, you can take every single longing that we have today. Whatever that longing is, whether it is a good, noble longing, or whether it is an immoral, evil, wicked one that comes from a twisted part of us, every single longing can be traced back to our original purpose in life. God's original plan for us to dwell with God, to enjoy pleasures in his presence forevermore. To rule alongside God, to steward creation as his governors of creation, to rule and reign alongside him. Humanity literally had the whole world at their fingertips. To live in a place with no disease, no sickness, No hurt, no suffering, no death, no war, no poverty. A world that was perfect and they were perfectly content. They had peace. They had joy. All that you could ever ask for, all that you could ever imagine. Creation itself was perfect. They had communion with God. And that was perfect. They had communion with one another, and that was perfect. They had the chance to live forever in this good creation. And astonishingly, that wasn't good enough for Adam and Eve. But before you throw Adam and Eve under the bus, before you come down too hard on them, you and I would have made the exact same decision 
Humanity chose to turn their backs upon God, upon the fathomless gift that God had given to them. All that God had entrusted to them was not good enough for humanity. You see, humanity had not been created, excuse me, humanity had been created as God's image bearers, but they didn't want to just be God's image bearers. They wanted to be God's equals. And so Genesis chapter 3 tells us that uh, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And I want you to just imagine this from God's point of view. God has created all that is existing In his grace and in his love, he has installed humanity as a special spot in this creation as his image bearers to rule over this creation, to live forever alongside him for all of eternity. And at the very first chance they get, they lead a rebellion against him. The crown jewel of God's creation scars creation with their selfishness. And with their pride. And and just think for a second, if you were God in that situation, how would you respond? Many of us would respond with judgment, with wrath, that we would start over, or we would get rid of humanity because they have shown us who they really are. They are not worthy of of ruling alongside us. They are not worthy of dwelling with God. And yet that's not what God does. Yes, there is wrath. Yes, there is judgment. But the fascinating thing, if you look at Genesis chapter 3, God's response to the rebellion of Adam and Eve, God does not curse humanity. God curses the ground. God curses the serpent. But he does not curse humanity. He says humanity will be affected by the curse, but God's love and God's mercy will not lead him to curse his image bearers. God is steadfast and faithful to his creation when each of us probably would have given up. And here at the very beginning of the drama of redemption, as we see God's plan to live with humanity and to rule with humanity, we see that God has not given up. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 tells us, even in the midst of this curse, there is a glimmer of hope. I will put enmity between you, being the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This language is mysterious, and yet it speaks of hope that the serpent who deceived humanity will one day be defeated by a seed or the offspring of this woman. The rebellion that has been started by the man and the woman will one day be vanquished by one of their children, by one of their offspring. And so the Bible turns to Genesis chapter 4, and it starts by telling us that the woman had offspring. That she had children. And it, it, the, the Bible asks us or, or forces us to ask the question, could it be that these children are the ones who will reverse the curse? Are these children the one who, ones who will make things right? That they will redeem the broken creation? And of course, if you've read Genesis chapter 4, you know the answer is clearly no. One of these children is murdered and the other one is the murderer. 
The evil that had budded in the garden now blossoms throughout the entire earth. And that's what the next several chapters tell us. That humanity continues to increase in wickedness until it fills the entire earth. That's the sad irony of the beginning of Genesis. God commissioned Adam and Eve to fill the earth as his image bearers. God commissioned Adam and Eve to fill the earth with his glory. And instead they fill it with wickedness. The wickedness of humanity is so great that God is grieved over the very existence of humanity. But instead of wiping out the rebellion of humanity completely, and instead of completely destroying creation, God preserves a remnant. And we see that in Noah and the ark. In the story of Noah and the ark, we see echoes of Adam. And it causes us to ask the question, is Noah the one? Is Noah the one who will redeem creation? Will he be the one who brings redemption that we all long for? And the answer is no. Again, wickedness continues to spread throughout the entire earth. Hundreds of years pass. It seems like God is silent as the wickedness spreads all over the earth. But God has not forgotten humanity. God enters into history again. He calls a pagan moon worshiper named Abram or Abraham to follow him. And he has a plan that he is going to bless all of the nations through this one man. And it's again clear as we look at the book of Genesis that this man is not the chosen one. He is not the one prophesied in Genesis chapter 3.15. Neither is his son Isaac. Neither is his son, his grandson Jacob. And by the end of the book of Genesis, we see that Abraham's offspring have become a great nation. But none of them are the chosen one. They are a sinful nation. None of them stands out. Hundreds of years pass. God delivers the descendants of Abraham out of slavery in Egypt. He forms them into a nation. He makes a covenant with them and he gives them this charge. Exodus chapter 19 verses 5 and 6. The the reason why he has called Israel as a nation. 19 verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God has formed Israel with a purpose, and that is for them to be a kingdom of priests. That they are to be a kingdom of priests among the nation. That they are to be a blessing to the nation. That they are to be a a light to the entire world. And again, we can pause and ask the question, are are these the ones? Could this nation as a whole be the the plan that God had to, to redeem creation? To redeem all of humanity? But you don't have to be too familiar with the Old Testament to know that that certainly is not the answer. Over a thousand years pass, and time and time again, the people of Israel show themselves that they cannot be holy as God is holy. They fail God time and time again. And then we get to the New Testament. At the beginning of the New Testament, Jesus comes. Jesus proves himself faithful where Adam has failed. Jesus proves himself faithful where Noah has failed. 
where Abraham has failed, where Israel has failed, where each of us has failed. Jesus lives a sinless and perfect life and earns an inheritance from God his Father. And yet he's crucified. He's killed the innocent for the guilty. And all that is so that we could share in his inheritance. You might be wondering, well, what exactly is that inheritance? Part of that inheritance is the glory of God's original charge to humanity. Part of the reason why Jesus died for us is so that we could one day live out the glorious calling that God had for Adam and Eve to dwell alongside God, to rule alongside God for all eternity. That's our inheritance. God's unshakable plan from the very beginning will one day be accomplished. And we see that in the new heavens and the new earth. We long for this day when we will one day receive our inheritance in its fullness. That God will one day redeem humanity completely. Not based of our, off of our merit, but finally because of what Jesus has done. The final fulfillment of all that God has promised and planned for humanity is seen in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. It talks all about God's purposes for humanity in Genesis 1 and 2 being fulfilled in the last two chapters of the Bible. We see that the effects of the curse are reversed and that God's people will dwell with him in creation just like God planned from the very beginning. That's essentially the story of the Bible. Astoundingly, the story of the Bible is about God's plan to live with us. That when we turn our backs upon God, God does not give up on us because he wants to dwell with humanity. He has a plan, he has a purpose, and no sin will thwart his purpose. Let's take a look at our true home, the new creation, to see what this new creation will be like, to see what our inheritance will be like. And let's take a look at three ways from Revelation chapter 21, where we will see God accomplish his purposes in the new creation. Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. What what does this verse tell us? Well, the first way that God accomplishes his purpose for humanity is to restore his creation. God will one day restore his creation. God is is at work or will be at work to, to provide a way for his children to dwell with him again. The glory awaiting the children of God is found in this first verse. 
Notice the parallels between the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 tell us of the creation of the heavens and the earth. And the last two chapters of the Bible tell us about the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. The new heavens and the new earth are coming because the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. Now, there's no small discussion here on what happens to this current creation, the one that we currently live on, this earth as we know it. Some will say that the earth is destroyed by fire and God completely starts over. Others will say that God renews his creation. In other words, he takes this earth, this creation, and he starts, uh, excuse me, he, he renews it, he resurrects it, and he makes it what it once was supposed to be. And there's a lot of merit for both sides. I'm I'm someone who believes the second position here, that God will renew his creation rather than start over. A couple reasons why. As I study scripture, uh, we see a lot of what God does and how uh, how he operates when dealing with humanity. And it, it seems like we're going to be living on a glorified version of the same earth that we live on today. That doesn't mean it's going to be imperfect. It will be glorified, redeemed, purified, perfected, just like our resurrected bodies will be. But there's a great deal of continuity between the new heavens and the new earth and the current heavens and the current earth. There's no reason to think that God is going to start completely over. For starters, we don't see the Bible in the Bible that God ever really starts over. It's not really the way that God operates. He's in the business of, of restoring things damaged by sin, not destroying them and starting over. Adam and Eve are an example of this. Instead of destroying them and starting over, he provides a plan to redeem them. God could have destroyed the entire earth in the flood, and yet he provides a remnant not just for humanity, but also for all of creation with the animals on the ark. Time and time again, God could have destroyed Israel for their sin and rebellion, and yet God decides to preserve a remnant first in the the wilderness and then second in the exile. I'm not saying that God can't act in a way where he starts over with the new heavens and the new earth. Just that we would need to to see it be very clear for us to reach that conclusion. In addition, uh, some passages seem to indicate that all of creation will be restored, not just humanity. Romans chapter 8 says that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. How is it that creation would long for redemption if that means that it will be annihilated? It seems to follow from passages like this and others that the creation will be present in the new creation. It will just be resurrected like our own resurrected bodies. Logically, renewing the creation rather than destroying it and starting over shows the futility of Satan's rebellion. Satan, in Genesis chapter 3, tries to get humanity to destroy God's plan, but it is so futile 
as we look at the end, it is so futile that God is still able to redeem his creation. One final note on this. 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us that the earth is stored up for fire and judgment, and that seems to hint at annihilation, but I think that misses the context. Peter, in that passage, is, is writing about the flood. In the flood, God preserves a remnant of creation, as we just talked about, not just humanity. Peter elsewhere uses imagery of fire to refer to refinement and to refer to purification. It seems that the new creation will be perfected, but there will be great continuity with the, the earth that we know here. Just like in your resurrected body, you will look like you. Your, your body will be purified, perfected, glorified beyond your imagination, and yet it will still be you. And the same thing can be said about the new creation. You might be wondering why exactly I spent so much time on that. Why exactly does this matter? Many of you know I was in Tanzania last month. Uh, on my way home from the place where I was teaching, uh, had the chance to take a slight detour and drive through the Serengeti National Park. It was the most beautiful, awe-inspiring, incredible place that I have ever been to in my life. I probably ever will be again. The moment I entered the park, we had to stop because elephants were crossing the road, just like we would experience deer here in the United States. So I'm, we're driving into this park, and I'm drinking in the glory of, of, of God surrounding me as I see elephants and, and zebras and lions and antelope and giraffe and hippos and golden grasslands all around me, while at the same time, I'm making a mental note of every single person that I needed to bring back here someday. That was a very, very long list. But the sobering reality is I probably will never return. I definitely won't return with everyone who is on my list. But in the new creation, Serengeti National Park will still be there. It will be resurrected. It will be perfected. It will be glorified. It will be infinitely more beautiful and glorious than what I remember. And yet all of God's children will have the chance to marvel at his goodness, his glory in creation for all of eternity. If you feel as though you've missed out on the glory of creation in this life because you've never seen the Grand Canyon, you've never seen mountains, you've never experienced beaches, the good news of the new heavens and the new earth is that you will have all of eternity to experience the resurrected, perfected, glorified, new creation. But not all of us are nature buffs. Some of you can't fathom the attraction of, of camping. It seems inherently backwards that you are supposed to rest by going and sleeping outside away from air conditioning, in the heat and humidity among insects. And so some of you might not get excited about uh, resurrected, glorified, perfected new creation when it comes to being in creation. For some of you, the same awe that I mentioned or described when I was driving through the Serengeti is the exact same experience that you have when you read a good novel or you watch a good movie or a good play or listen to good music. The beauty of the new creation is that the creatives and the artists who are here 
and who follow God will exist for all of eternity and they will continue to create masterpieces. Johann Sebastian Bach is a well-known composer. At the bottom of every single page of music he wrote and was satisfied with, he would write three letters. He would write SDG, Soli de Gloria, which means for God alone be the glory. Imagine the beauty of Bach's works and the new creation when he has all of eternity to compose new pieces. S-D-G. For others, it's football, other sporting events. Like Eric Liddell, you feel God's pleasure in the midst of those experiences. The good news of the new creation is that we'll have the chance to experience those things on a new, completely perfected level for all of eternity. C.S. Lewis uh, describes the, the new heavens and the new earth so well in his book, The Last Battle. One of his characters is, is experiencing the new creation and says this, All of the old creation that mattered, all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real creation. And of course it is different, as different as a real thing is from a shadow or a waking life is from a dream. The difference between the old creation and the new creation is like that. The new one is a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looks as if it means more. The heavenly country that we are meant for means more. We will be surrounded by things that feel more real than this life. We will experience true rest in that new heavens and new earth. And that's the exact same rest that the Old Testament saints desired. If we look at Hebrews chapter 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. All the things that matter in this life will be present in the new creation. All the things that bring lasting pleasure in this life will be present in the new creation, but they will be magnified beyond our understanding. This life is but a shadow compared to that which is before us. God will restore his creation. Revelation chapter 21 also teaches Excuse me, it would be wrong for us to think that the highlight of the new creation will be the creation itself. Revelation chapter 21 and 22 teach us that the highlight of the new creation is not creation itself, but rather it is the king who is seated on his throne. Take a look at verses 2 and 3. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Not only will God restore his creation, but God will also restore his dwelling place. Remember, God had a plan to dwell with humanity at the very beginning of creation. And here we see God's plan fully realized. In one sense, as I mentioned earlier, the entirety of the Bible is a story of God's unrelenting mission to live with humanity. Just let that sink in for a second. The God of the entire universe, the one we rebelled against, set out on a mission to dwell with humanity again. God creates the garden for him to live with humanity. They rebel, and so he has to expel them from the garden. Israel is established, and God creates a way for him to dwell in the midst of humanity again in the tabernacle, but it is in a distant and removed way, in a way that only the high priest can enter into his presence, and he can only do so once a year. We get to the temple, it's the exact same thing. A thousand years later, the temple is destroyed. Ezekiel tells us that the glory of God leaves the temple. In other words, he departs Israel as a symbol of God's presence. After the exile, God returns, but there is no ark in the temple. No symbol of God's presence among the people. And then we get to the New Testament. We encounter Jesus, also called Emmanuel, or God with us, as wrote in John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. After the resurrection, the Holy Spirit is sent to dwell within us, but God is not done. Revelation chapter 21 tells us that God himself, who has set out to dwell with humanity from the very beginning of creation, will finally accomplish his plan and will live with humanity as he has always intended. God's plan, God's purpose for humanity will not be thwarted. He will live with them again. And as we see in Revelation chapter 22, he will reign with them again. That was God's plan from the very beginning, to dwell with you, to reign with you. And in the new heavens and the new earth, that is finally accomplished. This is emphasized at least one other way in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. The end of chapter 21, starting in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Why is there no temple in the New Jerusalem? Well, the reason is, is because there's no need for it. The temple is the place where people went to go meet God. They went to go meet and talk with God, and there's no need for it because God himself lives there. There's no temple there because the fellowship with God will be immediate and face to face. God will restore his dwelling place. 
one final way that God accomplishes his purposes for humanity and the new creation. We've seen God restore his creation. We've seen God restore his dwelling place. Through the cross, Jesus has freed us from sin and death. He has given us or will give us resurrected bodies. The final piece of God's fulfillment of Genesis 1 and 2 is mentioned in verse 4. It says this, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The final piece of God's new creation. More incredibly good news is that God will reverse the curse. God will reverse the curse, all of the effects of the curse that we experience in this life. Pain, death, mourning, sickness, suffering, countless other griefs and sorrows, all of them will pass away. The brokenness of life that we know all too well will be gone. And God himself will be the comforter of our sorrows. Oddly enough, I think that this reversal of the curse is tied into a significant part of verse 1 that we skipped over that you might have found a bit odd. Verse 1 tells us this new creation will not have a sea. For some of you, that's more than just odd. It might be depressing to think of the new creation as a place where there are no beaches or oceans or marine life. But remember the context of the book of Revelation. Revelation 13, verse 1, says this, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Don't get wrapped up in the details there. Note where the beast comes from. It comes from the sea. For many in the ancient world, the sea was thought of as a place of evil. It was thought of as a place where wickedness originated. It was not a desirable place for fun and enjoyment like we see it today. It was a place of evil. Revelation even suggests that in the passage that we just read from Revelation 13. The origins of the evil beast are found in the sea. So when the book of Revelation says that the sea will be no more, I don't entirely know what that means for the geography of the new creation, but I do know the theological truth behind that statement. The threat of evil will be gone. The place where evil originates will be no more. Not only is the curse reversed, all of creation is perfected, but there's no place for evil to come from anymore. There's no place for the serpent to come and tempt us like he did once in the garden because the sea, the origins of evil, will be no more. God comes to reverse the curse. 
here exists an eternity that is perfect in every way. Creation is perfected. God dwells with humanity. The effects of the curse are removed. Any threat of evil for all of eternity is gone. And so as we close, I want us to just consider briefly the purpose of these words in Revelation. Why did God give us the book of Revelation? It it might be hard for us to believe, and I say this somewhat facetiously, The book of Revelation is not written solely or primarily to satisfy our curiosity about the end times. Remember the beginning of the book of Revelation. Revelation 2 and 3 tell us about these seven different churches. These were churches that were suffering or they were in need of repentance Revelation was written to these churches to give those churches and us as well a great confidence in the way that things are going to end up. Great confidence in God's ultimate victory over evil. Indeed, that's what we see in verses 5 through 8 of Revelation chapter 21. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give to them the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this inheritance, or excuse me, this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jesus is saying here, make sure you write these things down so that the church remembers who wins. Make sure that they know it is I, Jesus, the one who ordained things in the very beginning and the one who has already seen that they will come to pass. Make sure that they know that the water of life that can be given to them without cost comes from me and is fully assured. John, some of these churches need comforted. I can think of no better comfort John, some of these churches need to be stirred to repentance. I can think of no better motivator. Write these things down. See, if we were to sum up the teachings of the new creation from the Bible, it is simply this. The certainty of the coming new creation fuels our hope and our motivation today. The certainty of the new creation fuels our hope and motivation today. Like the first century churches, when things seem like evil is winning, when all of life seems to be falling apart, the new heavens and the new earth show us with surety and confidence a picture of what God intends for you for all of eternity. And like the first century churches, perhaps you need to repent. Here, again, you find motivation to leave behind the distractions of this life for something infinitely better. And perhaps you're not a Christian this morning. 
Perhaps you're not sure whether you're a Christian this morning. Ask yourself, are all the things that draw me away from Christ really better than what we just see here? All the distractions of this life, are they really better than what we see is ours as an inheritance in the new creation? If you find yourself thirsty, the water of life is available to you without payment. You only need to look to the cross. You only need to look to what Jesus has done, taking your punishment, taking your sin, and rest upon him to enjoy this for all of eternity. Is all that draws you away from Christ really better than this? In the last battle, C.S. Lewis, one of his characters, describes how the longings that we feel in our hearts will be satisfied in the new creation. Says this I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why I love the old creation is that it sometimes looked a little like this. The hope before us is infinitely better than the best moments in this life. We look forward to a day when we will finally be home to the place that we have longed for all our lives. And for those who are not in the faith, the Lord grants you or will grant you or could grant you grace and mercy to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17 the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come let the one who desires take the water of life without price let's pray lord we rejoice at the glory you have set before us we are humbled to think of your unshakable plan and purposes from the very beginning that you will one day accomplish in the new creation. And so, Father, I ask that we would lay aside every distraction, everything that hinders us from seeking you fully, that we may be able to take hold of the inheritance that your Son has won for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.